Well, good morning. So uh, my name is Ian McIntosh, and I'm part of the, uh, the preaching team. We get to cycle in when, you know, Scott's out. Like, he's uh, doing a wedding right now down in California, I think. So uh, that means I get to be here and, uh, and bring you God's word this morning. And it's always an honor to do that. Normally, when one of us from the preaching team cycles in, we go through, like, you know, an alternate series. And the series we're going through now is uh, the series in the Minor Prophets. So you might have expected me to preach on Malachi, but I'm not, because this one is kind of a bonus in that series. So this is just one off, right? It's a series of one, So, uh, and we're going to be looking at the book of Jude. So uh, feel free to look for that in your Bible. If you're going to be using one of the pew Bibles in front of you, then you can turn to page 1027. That's where it is. In fact, the book of Jude is probably all on that one page, because it's one chapter. So we're going to cover the whole book this morning. It's not often I can say I preached a whole book you know, on, on one Sunday without going too long. So uh, as you get ready for that, I want to um, ask, has anyone ever seen the movie Overboard? Oh, yeah. oh, good. Probably more than half of you. Good. Did you know they're remaking it? Oh, yeah. 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 I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. But uh, yeah, it's Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. Yeah. Kurt Douglas. Russell. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, for those of you that don't know the movie, the, the way it goes... Um, see if I can remember this correctly. Kurt Russell is this kind of redneck, single dad, like handyman guy, right? Um, kind of like me, except I'm married. And <laughs> but I, I, I grew up redneck, so that's cool. But, um, and then uh, Goldie Hawn is this, uh, you know, diva sort of rich woman that wants her yacht remodeled. And, uh, and so they obviously, uh, you know, she hires him and they um, have conflict, and she gets amnesia. She falls off the boat and gets amnesia, and he sees on the, you know, on the news that she was brought into the hospital, and they ask her, well, you know, what's your name? And she's like, I don't know. And then he, little light bulb goes off, like, ding. He's like, I know what I'm going to do. So he basically goes to the hospital and says, hey, honey, I'm so glad they found you. I'm so glad you're okay. I'll bring you home now. And, uh, and he pretends that that she is his wife and the mother of his Hillians, you know, little, little, and if you've seen the movie, you know, they are very good at being that. And, um, and so throughout the course of the movie, she begins to act like his wife and their mother and, uh, and, and they're really milking it. They're taking it for granted and basically treating her like hired hand without pay, you know? And, um, and then at some point she realizes who she is. And, of course, that's when the big, you know, conflict happens. And then, um, and it's been so long since I've seen the movie, so I forgive, forgive me if I get it wrong, but, you know, they, uh, she confronts him and, you know, you know, you think, oh, no, what's going to happen? But she realizes that she actually likes, you know, him and the kids, and she's made the kids into good kids, and she's cleaned the house and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, they have a happy relationship and happy ever after. And, of course, the, the jerk husband that she was married to, you know, there's probably something bad that happens to him so they can live happily ever after. Okay. Now, th- the reason I mention that movie is because, um, and, and I want you to write this down, and it'll be up on the screen. Um, I believe that if I don't know who I am, I can be convinced that I'm someone I'm not. And then it's only a matter of time before I start acting like that person. So you have a little space there on the top of your bulletin if you're taking notes on that. Um, If I don't know who I am, I can be convinced that I'm someone I'm not. 
and then it's only a matter of time before I start acting like that person. That's what Kurt Russell did with Goldie Hawn, right? She didn't know who she was. So he convinced her that she was someone that she's not, and she started acting like it. And, and that's where the analogy breaks down, because she actually had a better life acting like that person and you know, divorcing her husband or whatever. So we're not going to go there, because the point that I want us to get from that is that it's not good to act like I'm someone I'm not. I need to know who I am so I can live like that. This morning uh, in the book of Jude, I hope that we can see that it is vital to have an accurate identity, to be informed uh, by an accurate view of Jesus so that we can contend for the faith by helping those who have been led astray, basically those who have started living like they're someone that they're not. So the reason I use the word contend there, well, one is because it's in the book of Jude, but also I, I want us to see how important it is to, to fight for the faith, to, um, to guard it, to protect it. So that's what I mean by contend, and I think that's what the Bible means by contend, that we want to guard and fight for and protect the faith. And, and we don't do that by, um, by conquering people and you know, defeating them, we do that by helping them. And so we want to help them who have been led astray. So that's the book of Jude, and now I need to turn there. Uh, while I do that, I will mention most people believe that the book of Jude was written by uh, Jude, the brother of Jesus, and that it was uh, written to really all the Christians in, uh, in, around during that time, and therefore for us here today. So uh, we'll begin uh, reading, um, and actually I, I want to mention first three elements of what it means to, be, uh, to have an accurate identity, and, and you'll see uh, they're, they're in red there on the screen. Uh, verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Okay, so called, beloved, and kept. And if you're like me and you've read the, the epistles, you know, dozens of times or whatever, you might tend to just kind of gloss over those introductory statements like, hey, I'm Jude and I'm writing to you and bless you, that's awesome, now let's talk about what you're doing wrong. And, but but I, I want to stop for a minute and, and focus on those three words, called, beloved, and kept. Because I believe that's the identity that Jude wants them to have, to be aware that they already have that. And I think that's what God wants for us this morning. So what does it mean to be called? I think of uh, back when I was a kid on the playground at Elk Trail Elementary School and uh, wearing the, the, my corduroys and, and, you know, ugly haircut and missing teeth and everything. And, uh, you know, we're going to be playing, like, you know, some games out on the playground. And, uh, and so we all line up and then we have team captains, right? And... And I don't know if it was this way for you, but I'm always like, okay, I just, just don't let me be picked last. I just don't want to be picked last. Like, second to last would be fine, because then I'm not that guy, you know? <laughs> I just don't want to be the last one, you know? And, um, boy, that's nerve-wracking for a little 8-year-old or 10-year-old to all that social pressure, you know? And I think that's why we give participation trophies to everyone now, because we don't want them to feel that way. But the, the point there is, um, God would pick you first, all of you, right? <laughs> and, and so there is, no, there is no second or third or last. God says, I want you. I, I'm going to call you mine. 
And that's cool. And, and so, you know, you might not have a relationship with Jesus if you're hearing this this morning, and you might think, well, I, am I his? And I would say, well, he's calling you, so how are you going to respond? Are you going to accept that invitation, accept that call to be his? So being called by God is, is a very special, like, intense desire that he has for us, and that's why Jude says that we are beloved by God the Father, I don't know if you uh, have kids, but um, if you do, uh, remember the first time that you held that little guy or that little girl, you know, and, and you look at them and they're all purple and slimy and wrinkly and, you know, <laughs> but they're also beloved, right? I remember the first time I held each one of my children and just looking at them and thinking, oh my goodness, I love this little guy. It's just so cool, and, and I, I can't wait till he can understand how much I love him. And it's this sort of cherished, um, passionate desire, intimacy, just beloved, just like, yeah, I, I want to be with you. I want, I want you to know me. I want to know you. There, there's an intense relational element to that. That's part of my identity as a follower of Jesus. That's part of your identity as a follower of Jesus, that you are beloved by him and then kept that's like security, right? Like think of your, your most prized possession. You know, for me, it might be the, um, the email archive that I have that goes all the way back to the 90s when email was a new thing. You know, I'm kind of a digital pack rat. <laughs> so that's actually not my most cherished possession. But if my house is burning down, I probably would run downstairs and grab my server and, you know, as long as everyone else was okay, you know. <laughs> If not, I would grab them because they're beloved, right? <laughs> so, uh, but what, what is the most cherished possession you have? And, and what do you do to protect it, to keep it, to secure it? In this world, we have so much insecurity. There is so much that we can't rely on. There is so much that, that can catch us off guard or surprise us. But the one thing that we can be sure of is that God is keeping us. He's holding us secure. He's guarding us. So, called, beloved, and kept. That's, that's our identity. So now let's go on and look at uh, some more scripture here. So we just read verse 1, and he's introducing himself and identifying them as called, beloved, and kept. And then verse 2, he says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write about uh, to write appealing to you, yeah, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord. Jesus Christ. So he, he says, you know, really, I, I wanted to write to you a whole bunch of ushy-gushy, lovey-dovey, like, you know, isn't it great to be saved and we're so glad we're part of God's family, but there's something going on there that needs to be dealt with. There are some imposters. There are some wolves in sheep's clothing. There are some people among you that have come in and are perverting the gospel and they are endangering you and we need to deal with it. 
So uh, that's the contending for the faith part of it. And I want to talk about how important that is because we live in a society today where truth is not necessarily something that's, uh, that's held in high regard. But I want to tell you that without truth, we cannot know God. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so having an accurate view of who God is is so incredibly important, especially in today's world when people want to make God in their own image. So um, contending for the faith, you know, think about someone that you know who is not a believer. You know, I've got people that God has put in my life that don't know the Lord, and I care deeply for them, and I pray that they will come to see the truth of who God is. So if they came to me and said, hey, you know, I've got these ideas about God and, you know, I found religion and I know you're a Christian and I just want you to know I'm so glad that blah, blah, blah. And they start telling you things that are not true. Wouldn't you want to lovingly correct that? Because you care for those people. So guarding the truth of the gospel is vitally important. So we're going to look at some of the ways that they uh, did not um, guard the gospel. And um, it first comes from them not having an accurate view of Jesus. These false teachers, they did not have an accurate view of Jesus. Uh, There were three things that they had forgotten, according to Jude, in that passage that we read. Um, One is they forgot that his grace is not licensed to sin. See, it it said that uh, they had, you know, perverted the gospel, perverted the grace. His grace is not licensed to sin, Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul builds up this this amazing case for how deep and wide God's grace is and that God's grace is so um, more than capable of freeing me from all my guilt and my shame and my sin that I owe an an unpayable debt to God for those things. The grace of God can wipe it out. And then uh, the very first verse in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, it says, so what should we say then? Should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? May, May it never be. And I don't want to be the kind of person that makes him a mess for God to clean up so I can see how good he is at cleaning up messes. Right? I, I want to be the kind of person that, that sees sin as uh, the way that God sees sin. It's dangerous to me. You know, think back to the, um, uh, the, the original sin, Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, Satan sold them some lies, tempted them to, to, uh, you know, to turn away from God and turn towards themselves. That's pretty much what sin is. When, when I buy into the lie that God doesn't really want me to be happy, and if I do these other things, then I, I'll really be happy. Well, that's a big lie. And I need to say no to that. See, God wants me to live rightly for him, not because he wants to take joy from me, but because he wants me to be truly satisfied in him. You know, I I believe that I am most fulfilled and most able to give him glory and most able to enjoy him when I live the way he wants me to. And that is far better than what any sin could ever offer. But these people, uh, they they turned away from that. They started using God's grace as license to sin. The second thing they did was that they, um, they forgot that Jesus has the ultimate authority. And... You know, authority is kind of a big deal. A lot of people maybe have been hurt by authority. Uh, They've been uh, in situations where there was someone who had authority over them and they misused it or abused that authority. So there could be some wounding there. So uh, even like that song we sang earlier, Good, Good Father. You know, 
uh, if you're like me, when you sing that song, you might think about your earthly father. And I did not have a good earthly father or a good earthly stepfather. I had earthly fathers that did not represent God to me well. And so when I think of God my father having the ultimate authority, that used to be something that I wasn't really comfortable with. Like I knew in my mind, yeah, he's good and you know, the Bible says so and I get that. But my heart was just like, man, I don't trust him because I haven't had a, an earthly father I could trust. Why, you know, and, he, and God is the one that gave me that earthly father to represent him and did a really bad job. So you know, the whole idea of authority. Jesus has the ultimate authority. And these people rejected that authority, and they, they set themselves up to be an authority unto themselves. They were the ones that were defining what right and wrong is, rather than submitting themselves to God's authority. But the thing is, we have all, God has designed us to be under authority. And so the, the idea of autonomy, you know, um, functioning outside of authority, it doesn't really happen. And, and someone could say, well, I'm going to reject God's authority because I want to be free. So what they're really doing is walking right into a cage and locking it, and they're saying, I'd like to be a slave to sin. But see, Paul told the Romans, we've been freed from that slavery to sin, so we can live now as slaves to Christ. And so it's not so much a matter of, I want to be my own boss, but it's, it's more a matter of whose boss am I going to be, or who, who's going to be my boss. And, and, and these, these false teachers, I don't think they saw that clearly. I, thought, I think that they believed they could be an authority unto themselves. Okay, the third thing uh, that they forgot was that he will judge those who are not in him. He will judge those who are not in him. When Adam and Eve sinned, they did not die, right? And God had told them, you know, you can eat from any tree in the garden. You can play in this amazing playground I made for you. Just don't do this one thing. And they did that one thing. And, and he had told them, for if you do it, you will surely die. They sinned, and they didn't die. Yet. But we know the story. They did go on to, to die eventually. And in that moment, they died spiritually because they created separation from, between them and God, and the physical death followed that after a time. So when, when someone sins and lightning doesn't come down and strike them dead, they might think, oh, sweet, I could just keep doing that. And then take Jesus' grace for granted as a license to sin and just keep doing that, because he's not really gonna get me, right? Well, the Bible is clear that there will come a day when he judges those who are not in him. Following uh, in the book of Jude, I believe it is in verse 5. Um, now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, notice the word once, they had forgotten this truth. Uh, you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. I think it's cool that it's attributing that to Jesus. If anyone tells you that Jesus is not really God, this is one of many verses you could come to in the Bible where it says, well, here it's attributing that work to Jesus. Uh, many places elsewhere in the Bible, it attributes the freeing of Israel from Egypt uh, to Yahweh, God. And so Jesus is God. 
So Jesus freed the people from Egypt, and afterwards he destroyed those who did not believe. And that was probably Korah and Dathan, and we will talk a bit more about that in a moment. And it was a, a good you know, 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness waiting until that, the unbelieving generation died, and then a new generation rose up and was courageous enough to enter into the promised land. Okay, verse 6. And actually, I want to preface this. There are some, uh, some metaphors or analogies that Jude uses here. And some of them sound like they are Bible, like he's referring to Old Testament things, like, you know, the freeing from Egypt that happened. You can read it in the book of Exodus. There are other things that he refers to that are not in the Bible. They are in what we would call the Apocrypha, which is... Uh, if you had a Roman Catholic Bible, you would probably see those, those books in the middle between the Old and New Testament. Those are books that are not recognized by Protestants as being canonical. There's a big fancy word for you, meaning that they're not the inspired word of God, but they are helpful for you know, historical context or, or just a, like a window into that culture, uh, but it's not something that is, has the authoritative truth of God's word. And if you're curious about that, I would encourage you to go to the how we got the Bible thing. That, uh, that When is that again? April 22nd. April 22nd, because uh, I don't know if he was planning on it, but he probably will now <laughs> to talk a, a little bit about the Apocrypha and, and how, how people decided what didn't make the cut, so to speak. Okay, so sorry for throwing that on you there, Tyler, but <laughs> don't have time to preach it today. So some of these items uh, he's referring to from the Apocrypha. Like um, verse 6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloom and darkness until judgment of the great day. Now, some people think that could be referring to Genesis chapter 6, where it talks about the sons of God taking wives from the daughters of men, and the, the children they bore were giants in, among the land, and that calls them the Nephilim, and, uh, and then the flood happens. And uh, that could be what this is referring to. It could also be something else. So again, that's something that we don't have time to talk about, but it's interesting. And if you want to read Genesis chapter 6, you can you know, ask God to show you if there is a parallel there or not. So that's chapter... Now, th- these are all reminders that he's giving them about the imminent judgment of people that are not in him, right? These people that rebelled against the authority of Moses, these angels that did not maintain their proper dwelling place, their proper station that they had been created to exist in. And then verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal life. So Judah is reminding them, uh, these false teachers, they're going to be punished. If they are outside of Christ, then they are subject to the judgment of Christ. And then I, I want to skip down and read, um, beginning in verse 14, I think it is, where we, we see him talking more about this judgment. We'll just kind of collect the judgment scriptures together here. Verse 14, he says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Now, we don't have this in the Bible. It's one of those apocryphal things. Enoch, um, seventh from Adam, prophesied, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds, of their ungodliness that they had committed in such an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things that godly 
Yeah, the ungodly sinners had spoken against them. These are grumblers and malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So Jude doesn't think highly of these people who had crept in and perverted the gospel and had forgotten um, that grace is not licensed to sin and that Jesus has the ultimate authority and that God will judge those who are not in him. So those are the things they forgot. Uh, They also drifted a little bit. So I want to take a look at uh, some of the ways that they drifted. The first one is that they, um, they allowed a dangerous source of authority. I'm sorry, they, uh, they, they relied on dangerous influences. In this case, it was their dreams. And, and they were using those dreams as evidence for the fact that, uh, that they could be their own authority. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to, uh, like, to you know, you wake up and you, ha- you had a dream. And you're, in fact, this happened to me just this last week. I had a dream about someone. It was really vivid, and I remembered it very clearly. So I called them up, and I said, hey, I had this dream about you. Uh, not saying it means anything, but would you like to hear it? Oh, yeah, sure. And I told them, and they said, okay, yeah, you know, that, that speaks to a little bit about where I'm at in my life right now. Thank you. And, and, you know, so nothing wrong with believing that God can speak through dreams. He, you know, Joseph was an interpreter of dreams and uh, earned his way into being the second hand to Pharaoh because of that, right? So certainly God does speak to people through dreams, but let us not make the mistake of believing that every dream we have is from God, it should definitely be measured up against his holy word. You know, if I had a dream that told me I should, you know, rob a bank and, and, uh, and you know, run off to Mexico, probably not from God, okay? <laughs> so, just putting that out there. So, um, they, they forgot that, uh, or they drifted because they relied on dangerous influences. They also drifted because they lived for pleasure, and um, and then the the third one here is that uh, uh, that they rejected authority, and I, I mentioned that earlier that they rejected the authority um, uh, of Christ. And then one last one, they blasphemed. They blasphemed the glorious ones. So uh, living for pleasure, uh, we'll see a bit about that. Um, actually, we already did when we read in verse eight. It said that they were they were living for pleasure and that they rejected the authority, and blaspheming uh, the glorious ones. Um, the whole idea of, the, of uh, when, in verse 9, um, when he said, but when the archangel Michael, um, actually, how about I read uh, from verse 8 to 13, because we did skip over that. Uh, Yet in, the, in, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So there it is right there. But when the archangel Michael, contending um, with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So he's saying, you know, and there, there's a sense in which even Michael wouldn't dare, you know, speak like that against the, um, the devil. But these guys, they're blaspheming angels and not taking the angelic realm very seriously. Verse 10, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves 
for the sake of gain like Balaam's error and our perishing in Korah's rebellion. So Korah's rebellion, Korah and his sidekick Dathan, when, uh, when Moses brought the people out of Egypt, you can read about it in the book of Numbers, uh, Korah was uh, someone who said, you know what, Moses, we're tired of you. Uh, we want to go back to Egypt. At least there we had food to eat. It's like, I want to go back to slavery. You know, I want to go back to, I, I, I want to be under the authority of Satan rather than Christ because at least when, I, when Satan was my authority, I could have fun. That sounds foolish. But that's what these guys were doing in the book of Numbers. They, they, uh, they were rejecting the authority of Moses. And so Moses said, okay, sure, fine. You think you're in charge? Tell you what, why don't you prepare your, prepare your little censer, you know, the, the incense burning dangly thing. And then, uh, you know, all of you prepare one of those and we'll set them out before the Lord tomorrow and, uh, and we'll let God choose. So they did that and um, they set them out and Moses prayed and said, hey God, if, if I'm on your team, then uh, would you open up the earth and swallow them? And that's what happened. <laughs> the just big earth opened up, they all went down, and, and there they go. So it, it says, you know, they're perishing like those in Korah's rebellion, you know. And then, you know, the whole idea of uh, pursuing uh, gain or pleasure like, uh, like Balaam. Balaam was kind of a prophet for hire. You can also read that in the book of Numbers. He, um, he was a prophet of Yahweh, but then Israel's enemies said, hey, I, whenever you say something, it happens. That's really cool. We want to defeat Israel. Could we pay you to prophesy against Israel and for us to have victory? You know, it'd, it'd be like the patriots paying someone to prophesy that they would have victory against the eagles. You know, <laughs> didn't work, but... <laughs> <laughs> But they, uh, they had, so, the, you know, he, and Balaam, uh, choosing to pursue a dishonest gain, material wealth, physical pleasure, rather than uh, obeying God, you know, he, he took the bait. And, and you, you know, you may know this story. As Balaam was riding off to a different hilltop to prophesy, um, his, his donkey kept getting out of the way and, you know, running him off a cliff or running him into a, a cliff wall and, and Balaam got really tired of it and started, you know, whacking the donkey. And the donkey turns around and says, what are you doing? Don't you know I'm saving your life here? And strangely enough, Balaam's answer was not, you can talk. <laughs> his answer was, well, what do you mean you're saving? And anyway, so then Balaam and his donkey had a conversation. And uh, Balaam realized that he had been sinning against God and God was wanting to kill him. And the donkey was protecting him there. So just goes to show that anyone can speak for God, even a donkey. Okay, so um, those were the ways that they drifted. They allowed uh, a, uh, a wrong influence, um, they lived for pleasure, they rejected authority, and they blasphemed the holy ones. Now, um, so what do these false teachers have to offer anyone? Pretty much nothing. Um, what they offer is empty promises, destruction, and selfishness. And we see that in verses 12 and 13. Jude says of them, they are hidden reefs in your love feasts. A hidden reef is something that would take out a ship, right? A ship's coming into harbor, they don't see the reef down there, it, take, it sinks the ship. So they're dangerous and they're hidden. They're like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, as, as they feast with you without fear. They are like shepherds feeding themselves. That's the selfish part of it. Uh, they are waterless clouds 
which here in the Northwest, we'd say, yes, waterless clouds. <laughs> but if you were in the arid climate of the Middle East and you were living off of an agrarian system and you know, needing harvest, you would want clouds to have water, right? So they, they have words, but they don't produce any action is the idea, the waterless clouds. Uh, they're swept away by, or swept along by winds. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. Uh, they, they are wild waves of the sea, casting up foam from their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. A wandering star was actually a, a planet. You know, they didn't have GPS. They couldn't say you know, to their phone, hey, take me home, and it would take them home. Uh, they looked at the star, okay, that's that star, so if I go that way, then I'll get, you know, but planets, they wander. If you try to navigate on a, off of a wandering star, then you're going to end up lost. So if you follow the teaching of these false prophets, you're going to end up lost. And the idea of um, uh, a fruit tree in autumn not bearing any fruit, uh, a long time ago, we, um, in our household, we picked up a, a cherry tree. And, and we planted it in our backyard because we like cherry trees. And it, it didn't produce fruit. And the next year it didn't produce fruit, and the next year it didn't produce fruit. And then we, we looked at the little plastic ribbon tag at the base of the fruit. It was a flowering cherry tree. <laughs> it's not supposed to produce fruit, right? <laughs> and what a waste. I mean, if we're going to plant a tree, it may as well at least give us something, you know, but not this one. Like, sure, it's pretty, and then we have to rake up leaves. Yay! <laughs> so... That's what these guys were. They, they were teachers that didn't produce any fruit. By the way, I, I took a picture of that tree, put it on Craigslist and said, free tree, you dig. And it was gone the next day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then we planted a fruiting tree there, I think. So, yeah. Okay, so uh, what they offer, they offer empty promises. Those are the waterless clouds and the fruitless trees. Uh, they offer uh, destruction, like the hidden reefs and the wild waves and the wandering stars. And, and they offer selfishness, like shepherds feeding themselves. Okay, now that we've talked about uh, the identity that we have in Christ and the way that these false teachers rejected the authority of Christ and the things that they forgot and the way that they, they drifted off and, and wandered like a wandering star, now let's talk about how we can contend for the faith. And the first way that we can do that is by putting on our own oxygen mask. You ever notice when you're on the plane, you know, the, the flight attendant says, you know, in case of this, then oxygen mask will drop down, put yours on first, and then help the other person, right? So that's what we need to do. We need to put on our oxygen mask first, then we can help other people. So how do we put on our oxygen mask? Uh, two things. We can build ourselves up in the faith, and we can stay in God's love waiting expectantly for his return. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 17 here. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's how you can put on your oxygen mask. 
You can build yourself up in the faith through prayer and you can earnestly wait expectantly for the coming of Jesus, being ready for that moment. Then, how can we help other people? And we see that in uh, beginning in verse 22. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire and to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we can have mercy on those who doubt. That's compassion. We can save others by snatching them out of the fire. That's a sense of urgency, right? Um, when I was a, a probably 13 years old, there was a guy that would hire me to help him do stuff. He was a remodeler. And I... Um, I came, I was mowing this big field while he was remodeling a bathroom. It was a dry, hot summer day, and a bunch of dry grass had built up on the top deck of the mower where the engine is, and, and it caught fire. Yeah, and I didn't do it on purpose, but I was like, oh, oh my, it caught on fire. So I, I let go of the little thing, and it stopped running, but it was still on fire. So, so I walked back up, I walked back up to, to where he was working, and, uh, and I saw him in there, and he was running a saw, and I said, hey, Dave, the, the field's on fire. And, and he had a saw running. He didn't hear me. So, uh, hey, Dave, Dave. And, and he, he stopped cutting, and he looked at me, and I said, the field's on fire. And, <laughs> what? <laughs> and he, there was a window that he was working on installing. He jumped through the window, you know, and, and went running, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I probably should have been doing that. <laughs> I didn't really have the sense of urgency that, that I should have with that situation, right? Now, some people who are being led astray, um, what they need from you is compassion. They're not intentionally choosing to believe wrong things or do wrong things. They're just being led astray innocently, and they need that compassionate redirection. Other people are on the brink of falling off the cliff and catching on fire, you know, Act urgently. Right? Do what you can do to grab hold of that person and say, stop, you're on fire. And don't just walk up to them casually and say, hey, did you know you're on fire? <laughs> right? And then the third thing, we can show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. It's like you better put on your hazmat suit before you enter into that person's mess because you might get some on you and you need to be aware that you might get some on you. So you need to proceed cautiously. All right, I have, uh, I think, five questions for you to consider, and we don't have time to walk you through each one of them in depth here, but I want you to, to consider these questions maybe as you drive home or as you think about this message later on today. Number one, have you forgotten your identity? If you're in Christ, you have that identity of being called and beloved and kept. So have you forgotten that identity? Or maybe, maybe you don't have that identity yet. Maybe you need to answer that call and say, Jesus, I want to belong to you. I want to be kept by you. I want to be loved by you. Respond to that. Second question, uh, does God have the final word in your heart? He is the authority, not me. Thirdly, uh, are you taking grace for granted? Are you taking grace for granted? It's so easy to do. And fourthly, are you living for material gain or physical pleasure? You know, uh, John said, you know, do not love the world or the things in it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of life, and the boastful pride of life. 
don't live for what the world has to offer because it's not worth living for. And then fifthly, do you need to dig deep so that you can contend for the faith? Build yourself up in prayer. Build yourself up in the word. Connect intimately with members of God's family on a regular basis and wait expectantly for his return. If you do those things, you will be walking intimately with him and you will be able to help others do the same. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for, uh, for who you are, that you really are a good father. We thank you, God, for the identity that you desire to give each one of us, that you want to call us, that you want to keep us, that we are beloved by you. God, I, I pray if there's anyone here in this room that hasn't answered that call, that, that they would do that, uh, that they would respond yes to you. God, please enable us to, to contend for the faith that you've given us so that we can help others do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.